And uh, in the meantime, friends, if you will turn to Psalm 33 in your Bible. And while you are doing that, may I just make a comment that it is so good to be back with you again and to worship with you. It's truly a, an experience we look forward to. I have to tell you that I'm excited uh, when I got the uh, message from Kelly that I was asked to participate in this preaching series. The theme, which I'm sure you might be aware of by now, is the creative work of God. What could be a greater topic for biblical study than the creative work of God? I also got enthused because I had just finished reading the biography of Leonardo da Vinci. I picked it up at a bookstore. It was written by, I'm sorry, at Costco. It was written by Walter Isaacson. And he described Leonardo as one of the few people in history that truly earned the title of genius. He, of course, was the painter of the Mona Lisa, Madonna, the Last Supper, and the Vitruvian Man. It's the one that has the man all stretched out inside the circle. And also many other works that are now worth tens of millions of dollars, if not priceless. Leonardo possessed amazing powers of observation and insatiable curiosity. It is said that he wanted to learn all that there is to know about everything. No big problem, right? And among his works, for example, he produced hundreds of anatomical drawings that are still used today as he dissected over 30 human cadavers because he wanted to paint people from the inside out, showing how all of the bones and muscles and tendons and, uh, and sinews produced a fluidity of movement that was so unique to his painting style. Now, of course, this is not about Leonardo da Vinci. We're here in the Lord's house this morning. So where am I going with this? Well, one of the most interesting pieces of his efforts, and his efforts were really his entire life to marry nature, science, and art together. And it kind of introduces our message this morning because Leonardo's study in particular, listen, was of the tongue of the woodpecker. The tongue of the woodpecker. Here's an excerpt of what he discovered. The tongue of the, and by the way, this is an excerpt out of the um, one page of the over 7,000 pages of his, of his uh, study notes. The tongue of the woodpecker can extend more than three times the length of its bill. When it's not in use, it retracts into the skull and its cartilage-like structure continues past the jaw to wrap around the bird's head and then curve down to its nostril. In addition, in addition to digging grubs out of a tree, the long tongue protects the woodpecker's brain. When the bird smashes its beak repeatedly into the tree bark, the force exerted on its head is 10 times what would kill a human. But its bizarre tongue and supporting structure 
act as a cushion shielding its brain from shock. Now, don't go try this out. <laughs> and I can tell you that we have a lot of woodpeckers around our home. And when I see them, sometimes we'll be sitting out on the deck and I'll look, and there's that thing going on that tree or on the telephone pole. And I'm thinking, how come this woodpecker doesn't have a migraine 24-7? <laughs> now you know. But in addition, to, in addition to that kind of trivial information... What an amazing example of the creative work of God, yes? Amen. I mean, think about it. Well, then when I began reading through the Psalms, I, I came to Psalm 33, and it explains how God performs his creative work. Moreover, it reveals the purpose of his work, so we will have a greater understanding of his power, of his presence, of his knowledge, his loving kindness. And as a result of that awareness, we will worship him unreservedly. Now, the title of our message this morning is Our Creator God. It's not given in the heading of the psalm, yet all 22 verses represent um, a call to give lively and joyful praise for, to him for pressing out his nature and attributes into the world around us and even in ourselves as good examples. As you may well know, the book of Psalms consists of five smaller books. They were assembled in historical order um, over 600 years beginning back in about 1000 BC and moving all the way up to about 400 BC. The first book, Psalm 1 through 41, is attributed to King David. It was compiled prior to his death. So even though the, his authorship does not appear here in the heading of the psalm, it's bracketed by those that were written by him, 32 and 34. And he is mentioned as the author of 33 in the Septuagint. Septuagint was, of course, the Greek translation of the Old Testament um, that was translated back in about the year 300 B.C. It's also known as the 70 or the LXX. Getting to the psalm itself, it has a fairly simple outline. It consists of three main points. First, a call to joyful worship. Second, why we should do it. And third, how we should do it. First, what should we do? We should give joy, joyful worship to the Lord. Look at verses 1 through 3. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. Now this is an, an exhortation, more than just an invitation or even uh, uh, like a direction. It's an exhortation. Do this. And, and you can tell as David wrote this that he's kind of lifting the pages of these words, uh, lifting the words off the pages because he, he's very excited about what he's got to reveal in his following writing. And it's an exhortation to give hearty worship to the Lord. It's expressed in several parallel ways, as you have noticed. Sing for joy. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song and play skillfully 
with a shout of joy. And altogether, the point is that we are to worship the Lord with uninhibited enthusiasm. It is proper for believers to do that. And we're told to add various instruments. The lyre, or in Hebrew, kinor, had two to four strings in it. The harp, nebel, had ten or more strings, was larger. And together they provided strong musical support for singing, including the new songs, as mentioned here, that, that were inspired by a desire to, ex to express new ways to give thanks to God for his love and for his thoughtfulness. Today we have people like Sovereign Grace Ministries and Song Select and other people who are, who are writing music uh, and hymns that are designed to do just that. So what should we do? We should give joyful uh, worship to the Lord. Point number two, why should we do this? And this takes up the majority of the Psalm 33 text. We do this simply because he is the God of all creation. That is the core of the psalm because it ignites and sustains the fire in our hearts to worship him in spirit and truth. This point has got several subsections. The first, in verses 4 to 5, tells us we should worship him because of the very character of God himself. Verse 4, For the word of the Lord is upright. And all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. We worship God because of the integrity of his word. What did Paul tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16? For all scripture is inspired, God-breathed, and it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? So that all, all believers, all people could be adequate and equipped for every good work. In 2 Samuel 28, David prayed, Thou art God, and, the, and thy words are truth. You look at Psalm 19, and you find so many verses about this. Quote, thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is truth. Verse 151, all thy commandments are truth. Verse 160, the sum of thy word is truth, and every one of thy righteous ordinances is everlasting. And of course, we read in the New Testament in John 17, where Jesus is praying to the Father, and he's talking about us, when he says, Father, would you make, sanctify them in the truth? Thy word is truth. The word of God and the integrity of that word. We also worship God because of his work. It's in that same verse. Spurgeon said, and this is an interesting because it draws a relationship between the word of God and the work of God. They are related. Spurgeon said, God's work is an outflow of his word. It's an outflow of his word, and it's for our benefit. So we can trust him because everything he does expresses faithfulness to you and to me. We also worship God because he is perfect righteousness and justice, and he loves people who do right and who live justly. The next subsection that comes in verses 6 to 19 
tells us that David talks to us about how God could create his awesome works. First, he did it because he is all-powerful. And of course, we know that word to be omnipotent. Verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Please, I'm going to go slowly on this passage. I really want us to, to let it sink into our minds and hearts. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in the storehouses. Let me just stop there for a second. When the mention is made of the waters gathered together in a heap, it's, it's kind of a thoughtful reflection back to Exodus 14 when uh, Israel, by God's power, was released from captivity in Egypt and they were crossing through the Red Sea and God held up the waters in a massive heap and they crossed on dry land. That's a great God. When it talks about the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the deeps in the storehouses, let me just give you a couple of statistics here. That we are, we're all familiar with the recent news articles about the effort to visit the Titanic, which rests at the bottom of the ocean at a depth of 12,500 feet. That's 2.3 miles down. But where, where we see something... Like this, where God says, God, where the, David says, God stores up the water in the storehouses. Mariana Trench in the Pacific Ocean is 36,000 feet deep. That's almost eight miles. And by contrast, that is deeper than Mount Everest is higher than sea level. And so we put some meaning to the fact that God uh, gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap and he lays up the deeps in the storehouses. And then David's, it's an enthusiastic and, and almost an automatic and, and, uh, and passionate response. He said, let all the earth fear the Lord and let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and what? It was done. He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. Friends, if we went back to Genesis 1, we would see there that we're told that the mere spoken word of God created something from nothing. Try it. <laughs> I won't even go there. Something from nothing. You think about that for a minute. Who else can do that? The atmospheric heaven, the stellar heaven of stars and planets, the heaven that contains the very throne room of God, the very throne of God, and all of the angelic beings and all of mankind were created just by the breath of his mouth. And all of that earns him the authority over all of it. David said in Psalm 103, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. He is sovereign over all. Jeremiah proclaimed in Jeremiah 32, 17, Ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy outstretched arm and thy great power. Nothing is too difficult for thee. These are the things that no one else can do. And that's omnipotence. And for that reason alone, he is eminently worthy of 
what we're told to do, and that is to sing with enthusiasm, to praise Him with a lot of energy. He's eminent worthy of the reverence and the awe, the unspoken, <gasps> when we start thinking about these things. And obedience from the entire world, we're told. Furthermore, David declared that God exercises His power from eternity past to eternity future. Um, long time? Long time. Verse 11. The counsel of the Lord stands how long? Forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen for His own inheritance. Friends, there is never a time when his will does not prevail in this world. Sometimes it may think that, particularly if you watch enough news. You'll think, is anybody in charge? Answer, yes. He alone, God alone, possesses the big picture. He sees what's happened. He sees what's happening. He knows where it's going. And he is sovereign over it all. Ephesians 1.11 tells us, he tells us that he works all things, all things, after the counsel, the advice of his own will. He follows his own advice, his own counsel. Who's better to follow? Who could we follow that could be any better? And it is his will that the very blessing of God is upon those who believe in him. I pray that is you this morning. Why? Because it is a very evidence of our being chosen for that blessing before the foundation of the world. We could ponder that for a while. And to support and confirm these truths, the psalmist moves from God's omnipotence to his omniscience, his all-knowing nature. Look at verse 13. The Lord looks from heaven. And as I go through this, these couple of verses here, look, look how many times the word all is mentioned. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all. He who understands all their works. That is our God. It continues to say, the king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by a great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. And the emphasis here is on the truth that God sees the heart of every person in the world all the time. And he's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of all of them. He misses nothing throughout the entire history of the world because he is everywhere, all at once. And that's why the psalmist asked rhetorically in Psalm 139, where can I go from my spirit? What's the answer? Nowhere. And again, another question, or where can I flee from thy presence? Answer, nowhere. Because if I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that's the grave, thou art there. Absolutely nothing escapes God's understanding of the thoughts of every person because he created that capacity in every person so that they might discern his purpose to bless with deliverance those who would worship him alone. There's a very special relationship God has with those people. 
who worship him alone, who believe in him. David further built his case uh, for that authority, as we read, by contrasting the inadequate power of lesser things like a king and his army and and a soldier and his strength, a warrior, um, and a horse and its power uh, in verses 16 and 17. He's pointing out that measured against the power and knowledge of God, there is no hope for man other than putting your confident assurance of salvation in him and him alone. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Friends, we need to hear this this information that comes out of the Psalms. And I'm so glad that we're doing this series because everything is built upon the foundation of a great God. And as we sang, a good God, a God who cares, a God who loves, a God who wants to, who has, a, has you as a Christian, as a believer, as the apple of his very eye. Man was created to worship God. We're told in Isaiah 43, 21, and the people whom I formed for myself, God said, will declare my praise. We're created for that. When we do that, we can be assured that his approving eye is upon us for deliverance from premature death and protected from the difficulties of this world because we have an eternal hope, a confident assurance that far exceeds anything that this world could offer you and me. And that was his point in verses 18 and 19. He said there, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. That's the eye of approval. On those who hope for his loving kindness to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. And with that said, David now makes the third point in our outline. Remember the first point? is what we are to do. We give our joyful worship to the Lord. Point number two, why should we do it? Because of the character, the authority, the power, the widely sweeping knowledge, and the loving kindness of our Creator God. Final point, how should we do this? Look at me with, look with me at verse 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Let thy loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in thee. In recognition of the character, the attributes, and the work of our creator, we're told to do three things. Wait on him because he is our provider and our protector. Two, rejoice in him, because he is so totally, overwhelmingly trustworthy. And three, pray to him for the continuation of his active love over us, in us, through us, and out of our lives. All of this is based on our confident assurance of his faithfulness to his word and to his work. What a glorious and uplifting psalm this is. Yes? I'm going to close with another illustration of God's creative work. Back in 2005, the Smithsonian Institute published an amazing research article in their 
Air and Space Magazine. It was about a scientific study of the peregrine falcon. This study was led by Ken Franklin, an airline pilot, a skydiver, and a lifelong falconer. He befriended a six-year-old falcon named Frightful. Frightful was 16 inches long, weighed slightly more than two pounds. Now, Franklin knew that the peregrine falcon is a world-class athlete whose diving speed to catch prey, called a stoop, was faster than any other animal in the world, but he didn't know how fast. So he, along with other mathematicians, conducted an experiment to see if the aerodynamic features of this bird could contribute to the advancement of modern-day aircraft wings. The airline pilot would probably do something like that. Well, to make a log and, and very interesting story short, Franklin and the scientists attached a recording altimeter computer to the underside of Frightful's tail feathers in a way that wouldn't interfere with her flying. Then they flew a Cessna 172 up to 17,000 feet, and they released Flightful, Frightful into the slipstream. The bird immediately stabilized into level flight, matched the speed of the airplane, and flew just off the wingtip as she waited for Franklin to jump out of the airplane. And together, they fell more than two, two miles along with a lure that Franklin dropped during the descent to, to simulate prey. Using various instruments and videography, the analysis of Frightful's pursuit of the lure was nothing less than stunning. Recorded on record, over 242 miles per hour. It was found that Frightful could accelerate into hyperdrive from 100 miles to an hour to over 200 miles per hour in eight seconds by deforming her shoulders and flexing either a single feather or a group of feathers to make tiny corrections at high velocity. And then she would flip over in the middle of vertical flight and stop suddenly to wait for the lure to fall into her talons. At that point, the bird, weighing not much more than a loaf of bread, pulled 27 G-forces of deceleration and weighed 100 pounds. No big deal, right? <laughs> the conclusion that Franklin and the scientists came to was the aerodynamic efficiency of that little two-pound bird could never be applied to any flying machine made by man. There simply was no technology that could be replicated by human wisdom and effort. When we think, concluding statement, when we think about how our Creator made such miraculous creatures like a woodpecker and a peregrine falcon, we should reflect about how He made everything that exists again out of absolutely nothing. And yet, and here's a crossover for us, he cares for you and me with specific, loving, intimate kindness. Did he not say in Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with everlasting kindness. And I have drawn you 
with that loving kindness. Loving kindness is an action word. It's defined as the love of God expressed in visible ways. And does that not bring us to the cross this morning? The place where we find the most profound physical example of God's love in action. And so we worship him for, with enthusiasm for who he is. We worship him for what he has done in creating something out of nothing. And we worship him for leading us to the cross where his love and his forgiveness and restoration was made possible for our eternal benefit. I'm going to close with um, what I would call a prayer song. I'm going to close in prayer, but it's actually the words to a song. And it's on behalf of each one of us. It's very personal to me, and I want it to be very personal to you. So please make this your own as I pray, and we'll do that as the servers and, and the worship team comes up. Let's pray. I come to the cross. I come seeking mercy and grace. I come to the cross where you died in my place. Out of my weakness and into your strength, humbly I come to the cross. Your arms are open. You call me by name. You welcome this child who was lost. You paid the price for my guilt and my shame. So Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come to the cross.